Welcome back to Three Things. Today's guest is Natalie Jeresko, the former finance minister of Ukraine. Natalie grew up near Chicago, the daughter of immigrants who fled Ukraine during the man-made famine of Joseph Stalin. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, Natalie moved to Ukraine and worked there for 25 years with dreams of transforming it from a communist country to a capitalist market. She may be best known for her role in helping Ukrainians recover from the financial and humanitarian crisis that followed the annexation of Crimea in 2014. In today's episode, she reflects on how the current war in Ukraine will have direct, lasting impacts on the entire world for months and years to come. Rick and Natalie originally met in Puerto Rico, where Rick is building a new economic growth engine through Red Ventures Puerto Rico, and where Natalie was most recently tasked with pulling the island out of bankruptcy, restructuring about $64 billion worth of debt. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience at Red Ventures, and trust me, by the end, there was not a dry eye in the house, where Natalie reminded us of the tragic realities of war, but more importantly, the power of resilience and hope. Inspired by her words, Rick made a personal commitment to use his platform to help make a difference. This is Three Things with Natalie Juresco. Natalie, welcome to Charlotte. Thank you for having me. I collect a few things, uh, one being bad wine, but another one is great friends. And it is interesting because sometimes it takes a period of time to build a friendship and sometimes it's an instant friendship. And Natalie and I have some very good mutual friends in common. And now as part of our, you know, real investment in Puerto Rico, they say, you, you have to meet Natalie. And it wasn't all but six months ago that, you know, we met at your office. And 10 minutes into this, I'm like, holy cow, Puerto Rico is so lucky. <laughs> and an hour into it, it's like I have a friend now for life. And uh, we've had lunch a few times. We met a few times. So... First of all, I just want to tell you, thank you for being a friend, and thank you thank for you. being here. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. Thanks for the invitation. So you and I had lunch, I don't know, about six weeks ago. And I, I, you know, I came to lunch to learn more about the Ukraine war. I believe that one of my responsibilities as a leader is to have a perspective on a lot of things that may affect us short or long term. And, and I got to tell you, Natalie, I left that lunch completely confused because you know, I had told a story in my head that Putin wasn't crazy enough and that he was negotiating and that he was doing all of this to extract maximum rent and that he, he had so much leverage. And you're, no, 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 the, he's invading and it's a done deal. And this was a week before it happened. Um, and you have friends in Washington, you have friends in Ukraine, you have friends everywhere, right? So I have learned now to only ask you about Ukraine and everybody else is full of BS. So, uh, you know, I know that it is um, not what you wanted and has been a horrific month. And maybe let's start with the question that I think everybody has in mind, which is, where are we in this horrific chapter in humanity? So I, I think we're at an existential point in terms of the, the world that we've gotten used to after World War II. And, you know, we built a world after World War II that was theoretically supposed to stop those world wars from happening that was based on principles and laws and agreements that borders would be borders, Helsinki principles, and the UN charter, you know, that, would, that we would have a place to gather to make decisions as a world rather than resort to violence. And there have always been exceptions. Um, but, but, we, but we somehow got through the Cold War without a hot war between nuclear powers. And everyone thought in 89, 
1991, end of the Berlin Wall, end of the Soviet Union, that all of a sudden, you know, it's working. That globalization of markets was going to be a stronger pull towards democracy mm -hmm. uh, than anything else. And if we, just, if we just traded enough with China, if we just, you know, if they understood the value of entrepreneurship, they would become democratic. And I think we, we missed, we missed a, a point there. And what we're seeing right now is an autocrat, Putin, who's basically said, I don't believe that liberal world order works. I don't care about it. I don't need it. And, you know, I'm having none of it. Do what you will. Do what you want. I want this territory. And I want NATO to step away from Poland, from the Baltics. Forget Ukraine. That's, that's secondary. I want a different order. I want what we had 30 years ago. And if you won't give it to me, I'll take it. And... You know, it's, uh, it's existential for Ukraine because Ukraine's entire existence, the existence of a country and a language and a state and a nation, depends on the battle right now, on defending. They will be wiped out, literally, um, not figuratively, but literally, if they don't fight. And so, although it looks like, and you called it a conflict, it's a war, um, it looks like it's between two countries that are really far away, but it really is between two systems between the liberal world order that respects tolerance, tolerance of religion, tolerance of ethnicity, tolerance of sexual orientation, and a system that refuses all of that, absolutely refuses it. And I think we have a lot to lose if the autocrat wins in this case, a lot to lose. You know, a lot has been written about how unsuccessful uh, at least this first wave of uh, the Russian invasion and the Russian war that brought to Ukraine. Um, tell, us, tell us about the Ukrainian spirit. I think uh, Putin misunderstood from the very beginning who the Ukrainian people are. Again, his theory, he published it in an op-ed, in, op in, in an essay a year ago, was that there was no difference, that they're all the same people. We're Slavs and therefore, you know, kind of like Spanish-speaking people, you're all the same. Um, and you're not. And for hundreds of years, Ukrainians have tried to maintain culture, tradition, language, state against a Russian empire. And so he thought it would be three days. He thought he'd be greeted with flowers. He thought people were waiting to be freed from what he called a Nazi regime, a Nazi regime led by a Jewish president. So the whole thing is a bit bizarre. Um, and they did the exact opposite. Ukrainians are fighting with every strength that they have, every breath that they have. You know, elderly women are laying down in front of tanks, um, going up to soldiers, the story you probably all heard, you know, an elderly woman going up to a Russian soldier and stuffing sunflower seeds into his pocket saying, at least when you die here, flowers will grow on the, the land that, 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 that covers you. It's, it's, it's existential. Again, there's only one way to look at it. It's, it's existential, and Ukrainians are fighting with, yes, the support of the West. For the first time in Ukrainian history, there's you know, democratic countries, and I say West, what I, what I mean is democratic countries, because we're getting support from Australia and New Zealand. Singapore and Switzerland have joined sanctions. It's much broader than just the EU and the United States and Canada. And so there's a better chance than ever to win. But at the same time, they feel left behind, frankly, um, that it's up to them alone because NATO has chosen, possibly for good reason, to stay out and not to provide a no-fly zone, for example, to protect them from missiles and bombs. 
So they feel like they have, they have to do it. If not them, then who? And they have been pretty successful on the ground. Uh, a couple cities have been bombed to smithereens. People have been surrounded like in a medieval siege and starved to death, uh, denied water, electricity, heat in the middle of winter. The last cynical part of it is he came to save the Russian speakers. Ukraine is a multilingual country. And he's killed mostly Russian speakers in the east, north, and south. So it, it's, um, it's painful to watch. Without air support, without air defense, you know, you can just keep raining missiles. He's rained, there have been over 1,000 missiles in 30 days, in 29 days, 1,000 missiles. That, that's hard to defend. And you're... Um... You told me last night that you think it's going to get much worse before it ever gets better, if it ever gets better. Why do you believe that, Natalie? Well, I think we should believe his words. I think if there's a mistake we've all made is that we never listen to what he says. He's been very clear. About 10 years ago, he did a speech at the Munich Security Conference, and he said his enemy was the liberal world order, and he was going to destroy it. Then he invaded Georgia, the country of Georgia, in 2008. Then he invaded Ukraine in 2014. Then he allowed the use of biological and chemical weapons in Syria, notwithstanding a red line drawn by President Obama. He then stated that he would invade. He's recently stated he would be willing to use biological and chemical weapons, and we see that he did in Syria. We can't be surprised or shocked. It's not a first for him. Uh, he has tactical nuclear weapons. Yesterday, the president's spokesman, his spokesman, on Christian Amanpour on CNN, said that they did see situations which were existential for them where they would use nuclear weapons on CNN. So I think you have to take his words seriously. He has, uh, he doesn't value the same things that we do. We talk about wanting to, well, the rules of war, the Geneva Convention, you don't target civilians. He's targeting civilians. Those rules don't apply to him. If you think about, um, you know, humanity, right? You want as few of your own soldiers to die as possible. You don't want to bring home the quote-unquote body bags. Doesn't seem to bother him. He's lost more soldiers between capture and death in these 30 days than, they, the, Rus than the Soviet Union lost in the Afghan war over nine years. Doesn't seem to bother him. He's, he's recruiting Hezbollah and Syrians to come join. So if you don't care about the human element, then I think the equations, the, the choices that you make are very different than the logic any one of us would use, not wanting to harm humanity. What gives Ukrainians then the best chance of winning? That's not happening. Uh, more military support. The way I would say it is, if you're not gonna do a no-fly zone, and that seems to be the decision, then give us everything else you can. So that means more military support, whether it's Patriots or Javelins or S-300s, whatever air defense support the world can give. More sanctions, stronger, broader, deeper sanctions, with the intent of putting pressure on the elites and the average citizen to put pressure on him because he's the only man that can stop this. And I think the business community has a role I think the business community needs to say, if China goes this way, we would have to divest. 
Russia's already gone that way. Everyone ought to divest. And they ought to divest now. And if they don't divest, then we as individuals ought to be boycotting the companies that are supporting, through their taxes, the financing of this war. These are war crimes. President Biden has said it. It seems symbolic, but it's more than symbolic. Mm. I think mm. you're building a company here that has a very strong ethos, a very strong set of morals and ethics, and you're trying to create a better world. Don't, don't we want in some part for all business to do that? Mm. So I think we should shop and invest in companies that have some set of principles. Natalie, I know that you have been pleased, surprised positively in many ways as to how NATO has come together faster than others thought, how you know, some of the things have happened, but yet it just seems like not enough, and it's bureaucracies, processes. What, is, what do you hope happens that is not happening, that will save lives, that will restore Ukrainian um, integrity as a country? So President Biden's been an incredible leader. He has really united democratic countries. Without him, I don't know where we would be. European countries have come along. Germany has changed policies that have been in place for 70 years, increasing their own defense budget, um, providing weapons to Ukraine. And that all happened you know, over the last three weeks. So there's been a lot of change. The, the challenge is that it's not fast enough to save lives. And so what I would want, I would want a massive commitment to air defense. Ukrainians are willing to defend themselves. They're giving Russia, the second largest army in the world, a run for its money on the ground. They just don't have the air defense. And so I would hope that if, if NATO can't do it, because that would mean World War III, then NATO could agree to let individual members, either together or alone, um, participate in that air defense, participate in potentially humanitarian missions. Um, the Greek foreign minister has personally volunteered to go to Mariupol, the city that has basically been wiped off the face of the earth to try and rescue the remaining 100,000 people that are there, to perhaps bring in peacekeeping forces in some areas where that's possible, to stop at least the flow. If, if individual countries, Poland and Finland, or, or, or Poland and Romania, or some combination want to help, that they would be given the green light to go ahead and help. You know, it feels to me as I'm listening to you that the world did react. And I think the Ukrainians held on long enough that we all start seeing what was going on. And, 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 but I'm afraid that it will start, start being kind of yesterday news for many people. And that the pressure we need to put on on, on our leaders, on our companies, which is what you're so focused on doing right now, can, can relent. You know, the fact that there's 100,000 people trapped in a city with no water, no food, um, and it's going to get worse, it's just, it's hard to fathom. They cut off a second city today in the north, and, and, and it's a clear strategy. And so, yeah, there, there is a challenge. How do you keep this in the press. The press cycle in the United States and elsewhere is pretty rapid. It's amazing we've gotten this coverage for this long. So you have to always make, it's unfortunate, you have to make a big deal out of 
horrible things in order to keep the coverage. So a couple weeks ago, Russia bombed a nuclear reactor plant. There are 15 nuclear reactor plants in Ukraine. The largest nuclear reactor plant in Europe was bombed by the Russians. Luckily, the wall of the reactor didn't crack, or you would have had a nuclear accident 10 times larger than Chernobyl, 1986. And that would affect Europe, because those plumes don't stay in one place. Um, and so we have to make a big deal out of this nuclear threat, because that's something people listen to, they hear it. Recently, as the Russian troops go through and decimate towns, there's a, a, a lot of rape going on, wartime rape and um, kidnapping of journalists, torturing and kidnapping of journalists. Those are all themes that are hor horrible, they're horrific, but given the way the news cycle works here, you have to really raise them to the attention of people because journalists will report on other journalists being tortured, and you've got to keep yourself at the top of the news. It, again, it's unfortunate. If, if, if Putin uses biological or chemical weapons, we're, sure, we're certain to rise to the top of the news cycle again. Mm. You don't want that to happen, Mm. But you also want to keep everyone's attention. President Zelensky, who, you know, I'm sure a month ago nobody knew who he was, um, and now everyone has watched it on Netflix, I'm sure. If you haven't, you know, they've put it back on Netflix, his show, um, his, his comedy show. Um, he's spoken to every parliament. He, like, spoke to the Congress. He spoke to the UK Parliament. He spoke to the Knesset. You know, he's been trying to speak to each... Mm -hmm leadership to engage them mm. and I think that's a big part of it he does a, a daily video mm. literally kind of phone. from his camera um, to try and speak both to the people of Ukraine to keep spirits up to keep people fighting but also to speak to the world to show that you know it's still happening to remind remind everyone but it's a challenge it's a yeah. it's a challenge we um, is there any chance of some level of inside job in Russia where, you know, the, the military leaders, which probably is where they need to come from. Um. There's always a chance. Um, you know, in autocratic societies, there's always a breaking point. You see it historically. You just, you just it's very hard to predict. Mm. And he's created a very top-down system based on the old KGB, now the FSB. Um, recently, he's put a, a variety of top leaders under house arrest, so there's something going on amongst the leadership. But I think waiting for a popular uprising or even an insider deal is, 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 a, is a very low probability, especially given sanctions are rolling out so slowly that there's not a real crush on the economy at this point. So I, I don't think it's imminent, although it's always right. possible. Right. I've lived through so many revolutions, I could never have predicted one of them. Right. Never. right. That's true. You know, I, uh, I know that both of your parents were in immigration camps in Europe um, before they came to America. Right? So this is deep and very real for you. And I'm sure the stories of your parents um, having to flee Ukraine to go to Germany um, what, 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 what are some of the lessons that you learned from them to keep hope, to keep purpose? The immigration during World War II was with families. My father, my grandfather went with their wives, their, their children. And this is only women, children, and elderly. 
the men have had to stay behind, they're conscripted, no one between, no males between the age of 18 and 60 are allowed to leave. So these are broken families. You know, everyone leaving a war is gonna have PTSD. Um, but this goes beyond that in that they've all left someone behind. Um, so how do you reestablish a life when your husband, brother, father are still back there? It's a much greater challenge than even I think what my family went through mm. from that perspective. From the other perspective, people are thinking of going home, whereas my parents, it was the Soviet Union after World War II, they could never go back. It was communist, and they could never go back to a communist country. So there's the positive that we can try and give them hope that we're gonna rebuild, that the, that the war will end, we will rebuild and you can go home. Right. But it's a very challenging situation in that you know, 10 million people are expected to flee. That's just, you know, two million have already fled to Poland. And Poland is like, unable to fit another person into their homes, their hotels. There's nowhere to stay. 10 million people is going to really overwhelm Europe. Um, it's just, it's economically overwhelming. You've got to put them into schools. There's language barriers. I mean, it's, it's a major, major task. And I think it's going to be a slowdown in the European economy for sure as a result. And the repercussions of this um, are not just going to be oil and gas and all the things that the, the repercussions of these are so much deeper given how much of the world gets fed by the Ukrainian lands. Why don't you tell everybody, you know, the biggest fear you have in terms of, not the biggest, but, 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 but it, something no one is talking about, but it's something we're all going to have to deal with. Ukraine is the second largest exporter of grains taken together. Number one in sunflower oil in the world, number four in wheat, rye, barley, you name it. And the ports are all blocked. There's, there's very little planting going on, as you can well imagine, um, although they're trying to inspire someone in the West to plant. And 400 million people get fed by Ukraine's exports. Those 400 million people tend to be in Northern Africa and the Middle East. And so countries like Ethiopia, Eritrea, Libya, who already many of them are on the verge of hunger often, famine, hunger, um, will have no access to Ukrainian food, foodstuffs. And you know, it's not tomorrow, but it's the next marketing season. So that means this is gonna carry into you know, the next marketing, next winter. And then something people don't think about, but 90% of the highly developed neon that goes into semiconductor chips manufacturing, 90% of it comes from Ukraine. Hmm. So you've seen fuel prices rise, you're gonna see food prices rise, semiconductor, which we're already having supply chain issues, right? Post-COVID, right. is gonna be even more complicated. There are many things like that. Ukraine is the 12th largest steel exporter. Russia is the fifth largest. Together, that means steel prices increase. That means construction of homes right? It, it, it's it's going to have major knock-on effects, which is why the urgency is so important. You kind of go back to when you talk to people in Washington, you know, if they think, well, you know, we'll just give it another few months. The president said that, you know, we'll just give it another few months. Aside from the moral issue of people, thousands of people dying every day, the world is going to pay a much higher price the mm -hmm. longer this goes on. Mm. And then the, the cost to all of us will be so much higher. Mm. You know, the, um, in, the, in this developing countries, the reality is not that you say, okay, well, well, let's reroute some wheat. There's no routes. There's no ships going. So 
it's not like you can rebalance the distribution. There will be no food in big chunks of Africa uh, and the Middle East come a year from now. Um, the, you know, and I want to touch on this for a second. Last night, as, as we um, talked about this, I said, well, is there a settlement? Is there a negotiation here possible? Does this lead to Crimea and whatever territory is becoming part of Russia and the Ukrainians swallow hard and say, you know what, this is not what we want, but we prefer to rebuild and have our freedom. And President Zelensky has said, hey, we want to be a part of NATO. NATO doesn't want us. And he's been very clear on that. You reacted very passionately that that is very unlikely to happen, um, a, a negotiation and a settlement happen. Tell, tell us why. It's not that I don't want a peaceful negotiation. I, I, I do. I'm not a warmonger or anything. I don't want you to misunderstand. But when you've been fighting for hundreds of years, and right now you're, as I said earlier, best place to potentially win than you've ever been in your thousand years of history, and you've lost this many people, and it's been so horrific in terms of the targets and civilians, to then agree to give up territory would just not be acceptable to the Ukrainian people. They didn't lose this many lives in order to go back to this, the status quo pre-war. And at least at this stage, when they still believe they can prevail, and I believe they can prevail, unfortunately at a high human cost, but prevail, they're not ready for that. And so if President Zelensky were to say neutrality is okay, he would have to have a referendum. It would be a change in the constitution of the country. And I don't believe they would vote for it. Remember that the people who stayed to vote, you've got this always the thing, you know, the people who stayed to vote are staying to defend the country. Mm. Their ability to vote for something like that is barely minimum. I, I, don't, I don't believe it's possible. And the president couldn't, couldn't remain president if he tried to force it. So I think there, there, are, there are ways to settle this, but they don't involve giving up territory. Um, and they don't involve trusting the promises of Putin. Look, mm -hmm. You'll hear Zelensky talk a lot about security assurances from third parties. Mind you, in 1994, Ukraine gave up the third largest nuclear stockpile in the world voluntarily in return for security assurances from Russia, the United States, the UK, and others. And those security assurances have been worth zero. So Ukrainians have kind of learned the hard way that whatever assurances you're going to get, mm. they have to be more than just somebody's signature. So they're going to negotiate hard. And that makes this negotiation very And difficult. think about all the countries that have the means to obtain nuclear weapons but have agreed to be protected by others with nuclear weapons, and you're sitting there going like, this is what we're going to do? I think the proliferation of nuclear weapons across the world is going to increase because it's the only real deterrent right now. Um, and if Ukraine had nuclear weapons, it'd probably be a different situation now. President Zelensky was the most unusual character to be the president of a wartime, right? The, 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 the way that he rose to power, even his reputation early on, to the outside world, 
he has proven to be a master communicator, a master leader. What have you learned from a leadership standpoint watching him? His commitment to his people, his willingness to stay with his people, to live through the same thing they're living through, to, to, it, to experience the war, even though he could have left. His willingness to speak to the people, even when he's, you know, you can see sometimes he's exhausted beyond measure, but he realizes that they need his leadership, they need his voice, they need him to be there for your team, to be there for your people, to share that experience and not walk away even when you can, to show that courage, I think means everything. His quote will live forever, I don't need a ride, I need weapons. When was asked if he wanted to leave the country. Um, so, to close this out, you know, I think this is a really heavy topic, but an important topic. I don't think we can be what we intend to be if we don't educate ourselves, if we don't look at these things. We care about the world, we're living for our kids. And you and I talked last night that the refugee crisis, Europe is in, in, in the world, I believe UK yesterday, and my, my guess is, the refugee crisis is, um, there's a lot of things going on, but that the real need today, there will be a whole reconstruction of hundreds of billions of dollars when the Ukraine wins. But the need today is there's a lot of supplies that are dry and there's no medicines, there's a lot of things, and there's, you have ways to get things into the system through Poland. I'm making a commitment to you that we're going to raise $5 million from us and we're going to work with you and we're going to start getting medicines in there. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. I am humbled and touched by your words. Here are the three things I learned from our conversation. Number one, while all of us will give our life for those who we love most, it is in times like this that we realize that there's something that is more important than someone, and that something is freedom. We get to live the way we do today because others made the ultimate sacrifice for us. Number two is a reminder that we're truly leaders in a time of crisis. President Zelensky has shown this in spades. By choosing to stay in the front line nonstop, he's done this better than anybody I have seen in recent times. Others like Natalie are doing it by putting humanity above all else. We are not leaders because of our title, but because of our actions. And number three is that history is full of examples of good versus evil. In our lifetime, this is the most clear example of the battle being fought in front of us. What we do in support of good will not only help decide the outcome of this war, but define how we view ourselves in the world moving forward. As our pledge to help Natalie, we will match up to $2.5 million. So visit 3things.redventures.com to see how you can get involved and donate.